Well, welcome everybody. My name is Robin Archer and I'm the director of the Ralph Miliband Program here at the London School of Economics. And I'd like to welcome you to the last of this year's series on war and peace. And I can't tell you how pleased I am to be able to introduce our speaker tonight, the Honourable Kevin Rudd. Kevin Rudd was the Labor Prime Minister of Australia between 2007 and 2010 and then again in 2013 and he served as Foreign Minister um, in between those periods. And his tenure as Prime Minister was marked by a number of signal achievements. One can't go through them all but I think it's worth noting the very important apology to Indigenous Australians that he made over the forced removal of children. The signing of the Kyoto Protocol took place on his watch and he reversed a regime of market fundamentalism in Australia's industrial relations. He also presided over major reforms of the health and education system, but perhaps most strikingly of all was his government's effective response to the global financial crisis. As some of you may know, Australia was the only major industrial economy that did not go into recession in the wake of that crisis. He also took a particular interest in foreign affairs, and I think that was not just because, positioned as it is on the Pacific, no Australian leader can afford not to, but also because before he was a politician, he was a diplomat, and he had a special interest and expertise in questions concerning China. And it's to those issues that Mr Rudd has returned uh, after his political career um, uh, came to an end. He's now the president of the Venerable Asia Society's uh, Policy Institute in New York, and he's the chair of the Independent Commission on Multilateralism, which, if I understand correctly, is, is, going to, is about to conduct a review of the UN system. Um, he's also held visiting posts at Harvard, in Beijing, here at Chatham House, um, various international study centres in Washington, in Chicago and elsewhere. So you can see that he's unusually well equipped to speak to the theme we have tonight. Uh, Mr Rudd's going to be speaking for about 45 minutes and then he'll be taking questions. But can I just ask you now to join me in welcoming our speaker, the Honourable Kevin Rudd. Thank you very much for that uh, very warm London welcome. And uh, it's good to be back in these sceptred aisles. Uh, the, uh, thank you for the kind invitation to deliver this uh, Miliband lecture. Uh, it's uh, also uh, a great honour to have with us both uh, the director and head of the school, Professor Craig Calhoun, Lord Nicholas Stern, good friend of mine, uh, and my very good friend, uh, the Right Honourable Ed Miliband. Uh, Ed has been a friend of mine for a long, long time, and it's my honour to count him still as my friend, a good friend, a good person, and in my experience of him, a fundamental supporter of the cause of progressive politics in this country and around the world. Politics is not an easy vocation. Uh, we have the scar tissue, in my case, the uh, secular stigmata, still to prove it. Again, thank you for this invitation to deliver this Miliband lecture. It's 75 years this year and to this month since Ralph Miliband uh, left on the last ship from uh, Ostend to Britain in advance of Hitler's crushing victory over the Netherlands, 
Belgium and France in the spring of 1940. At its best, this country, over many centuries, has welcomed the oppressed peoples of Europe to these islands and its long tradition of intellectual, academic and political freedom. It was this tradition that enabled Miliband, a self-proclaimed Marxist, to be able to research, write and teach in a country well accustomed to the battle for ideas and a country well versed in the virtues such full-blooded intellectual engagement delivers, not just to the life of the mind, but also to the world of public policy. You go through the list of names, Bacon, Hobbes, Locke, Bentham, Smith, not all graduates of this school, Hume, Mill, Wollstonecraft, Spencer, Carlyle, Marx, Beatrice and Sidney Webb, Keynes, Popper, Hayek. And that's before we get to the high priests of the hard sciences, let alone the dismal science, Nick. The roll call is formidable. We may love some and we may hate others, but the intellectual ferment between them and the academic institutions and the political environment that made such ferment possible helped drive each to excellence in his or her field. Such a tradition here in Britain is not an historical accident. It was not always like that, as any cursory reading of English history before the Glorious Revolution will confirm. It's a tradition that has been hard fought, and it is an intellectual tradition to be cherished for the future too, a tradition that still acts as a global magnet for this great city, as one of the great international cities of the 21st century. The same too for this school, founded by the combination of Beatrice and Sidney Webb and the Fabians, it has always occupied a place in the hearts and minds of those of us who have laboured hard in the fields of social democracy across the world, seeking always to reconcile the logic of the market, the universality of social justice, the complex and often conflicting demands of sovereignty, of security and international solidarity, and now the overriding challenge of the sustainability of the planet itself. These are no small challenges. They are indeed great challenges. But challenges too not to be quietly swept into the international too hard basket. The responsibility of social democrats is to reconcile these challenges. Not to pretend, as some political traditions do, that half of these challenges simply don't exist, simply because they present too many inconvenient truths is why the LSE, if we look at its disciplines, its faculty and its student body, stands out as a global school embracing a truly global agenda. Just three years after the LSE was founded in 1895, one of its co-founders, Beatrice Webb, visited Australia to examine the progress of socialism in the Antipodes. Beatrice was not impressed. <coughs> she had this to say about the Australian Labor Party in my home state of Queensland. I quote her. The program and policy of the Labor Party uh, is modest. It still has to content itself with cavilling at the everyday administration of the government and screeching loudly at each reactionary measure. Altogether, the political situation in Queensland is about as hopeless from a progressive point of view as well it could be. That was just Queensland. <clears throat> Beatrice left her most focused vitriol for the country of Australia at large, <clears throat> where she said, and I quote her again, as for society in Australia, bad manners, ugly clothes, <laughs> vigour and shrewdness characterise the lower and middle classes, that includes me, 
Uh, and the richer they are, the more objectionable they become. <laughs> Besides vulgarity and a rather gross materialism, their worst characteristic is a lack of strenuous persistency. They are inclined to self-indulgence and disinclined to regular work. <laughs> Muddling on with a low standard of efficiency is the dominant note of Australian public life. <laughs> Unquote. Thank you, Beatrice. Um, for that free character analysis. And through Beatrice, your founder, thank you too to the LSE. It would be petty of me to observe that in Queensland we formed the first Labor government in the world in 1899, the year after Beatrice left Australia, so I won't emphasise that. It would be equally churlish if I were to observe, so I, once again I won't, that within a decade of Beatrice's departure from Australia, we formed one of the first national Labor governments in the world with an absolute parliamentary majority, fully 15 years before Ramsay MacDonald's minority government. But that would be petty to raise both those things, <clears throat> so I won't. So while Beatrice may have misjudged us at least a little uh, during her sojourn in the Antipodes, her judgment together with that of her husband Sidney's in driving the establishment of this great institution was sound indeed. Not least because you've educated thousands of Australians here at the LSE over the last century, including the rowdy ones up the back who I saw before. <clears throat> My apologies on their collective behalf. The subject of this lecture is the rise of China and its impact on the regional and global order. The subject is complex, but my argument is simple. First, the strategic trajectory of US-China relations against the benchmark of the last four decades of the post-normalisation relationship is increasingly negative. Second, the core reasons for this deterioration arise from a number of factors. Conflicting national values and interests between the two, which are real, compounded by significant strategic misperceptions in both directions, which also influences policy, as well as the absence of any common strategic narrative capable of managing deep disagreement at the same time as maximising common interests, which also exist. And third, I argue there is nothing determinist about the future trajectory of the US-China relationship. In fact, there is an alternative strategic narrative on offer which, if agreed, could succeed in negotiating the many shoals that lie ahead for the bilateral relationship, as well as contributing to the development of a sustainable regional and global order for the future. A narrative I have called constructive realism, common purpose. Of course, this approach, particularly in the midst of recent developments in the East and South China Seas, leaves me in a distinct minority in an emerging strategic discourse in the United States, and to some extent in China as well, which increasingly assumes both countries are on some sort of collision course. This has not always been the dominant paradigm in the US-China relationship. In fact, it is a relatively new development in the content of the various ebbs and flows of the last 40 years of the US-China relationship. As Professor David Lampton has recently argued, and I quote him, the trend in domestic discourse in both China and the United States over the last 15 years has been from engagement to a little light hedge to a heavy hedge and increasingly towards <coughs> deterrence. Deterrence vocabulary leads to discussions of threat, will, capability, second strike and credibility. 
This is a far different vocabulary than the one that generally was employed during the last 40 years. What worries me greatly is the gradual migration of the centre of gravity of elite and popular discussion in both nations towards more extreme analyses and policy recommendations that simply feed one another. Past policy has not collapsed, but it is weakening. This trend has intensified over the last six months. If it continues in this direction, it will have profound implications for the future relationship between the world's two largest economies and the world's two largest militaries. It also has implications for the future of the regional order in the Asia-Pacific region, which contains two-thirds of the world's population and more than half the world's economy. And beyond Asia, there are implications for the future of the global political and economic order as well. If the US and China find themselves at loggerheads over the future of the Bretton Woods institutions, the UN Security Council and other global institutions as well. And with conflicting interests and allegiances in other theatres of the world, from Africa to Latin America and, of course, here in Europe. And while the rest of the world is focused primarily on developments in the Middle East and in Central Europe, I argue that it is in Asia we are seeing new geopolitical, geoeconomic and geostrategic fault lines emerging with a greater capacity fundamentally to alter the post-war order. The current trajectory in US-China relations is increasingly dangerous for us all, for China, for America, and for the rest of us as well, who depend on a stable international rules-based order. Professor Lampton argues we have reached a tipping point. I do not quite go that far, at least not yet. This September's Washington summit between President Obama and President Xi Jinping will be critical. Critical if we are to take a possible tipping point and transform it instead into a turning point, not just a tactical or temporary calming of the waters, but rather a more fundamental turning point in the way these two great countries and civilizations approach their strategic future, either a divided future with all of its destructive simplicity or a common future recognising all of its complexity, which avoids the risks of crisis, conflict or even long-term war and instead seeks to build a sustainable order internationally for us all. And that is the burden of this lecture here this evening. If history is our guide, the construction and preservation of international order is no easy thing. While the construction and preservation of a genuinely global order is virtually without precedent, history is littered with the institutional carcasses of noble attempts to impose order upon chaos. Chaos which the high priests of high realism, from Machiavelli to Morgenthau, tell us is the natural condition of international politics. <coughs> Yet the prescription of these self-same realists for the preservation of order has as its common theme, or slight variations on a theme, a classical balance of power which itself has left us carnage at an industrial scale in what for a time was called the Great War. In these sobering years of anniversaries, 1815, the bicentenary of the Congress of Vienna, 1914, the centenary of the war to end all wars, and 1945, the 70th anniversary of the end of the world war that followed the war to end all wars, we are haunted afresh by the ghosts of failure. The disciples of the concert of Europe failed to mention the violent suppression of the revolutions of 1830 and 1848 as absolute monarchies clung desperately to power. 
Then there is a minor problem of the Crimean and Franco-Prussian wars, where once again we saw the great powers pitted against each other. These are uncomfortable disruptions to the comforting retrospective narrative of the century of peace that allegedly followed the Napoleonic devastation of a continent. And that is before we add the calculated barbarism of a century of European colonialism, which subjugated much of the rest of the world with a brutality on an industrial scale that continues to influence global politics to this day. As for 1914 and the events that followed in constructing the peace in 1919, little now needs to be said. We are, as I've said, well familiar with the unspeakable failure of the balance of power to preserve either peace or prosperity in 1914. We are equally familiar with the failure of the League, the second of the two most overworked university examination questions of the 20th century, (laughs) the first being on the causes of the conflagration that preceded the establishment of the League. So that by the time we collapsed, collectively exhausted amidst the ruins of 1945, we had seen in the space of 30 years the most graphic of global epitaphs written to both Hobbesian and Kantian constructs on how to build a sustainable global peace. Both the deep cynicism of high realism and the purported nobility of liberal internationalism lay in ruins, as did much of the physical world itself. It was out of these dying embers that was born what we now blithely describe as the post-war rules-based international order. From the outset, it represented a cocktail of liberal aspiration and realist power, crowned by the United Nations and the Bretton Woods institutions, and underpinned by the reality of virtually unchallenged American military and economic might. And despite the high-wire nuclear act that we now call, equally blithely, the Cold War, and the American unipolar moment that briefly followed it, that order, the post-war order, by and large has remained fundamentally unchanged since then. Order, stable or unstable, just or unjust, remains, in my judgment, the central question of international relations and international development. It is much a security question, as it is an economic and social question, and now also an environmental question. If we ignore its centrality, fail to recognise the seeds of its disintegration, or else believe that orders are somehow inherently, mystically self-sustaining, then we fail to learn the core lesson of history, and in so doing abdicate our responsibility for the future. The uncomfortable truth is that the current order has already lasted longer than most of its predecessors since the Treaty of Westphalia more than 350 years ago. We therefore need to order afresh our thinking today by asking what has fundamentally changed in world politics since 1945. This will help us to determine what challenges the existing order's long-standing institutional arrangements and why they can no longer meet those expectations without further institutional reform. I argue that there have been three fundamental changes. First, because the UN is an international society of states, Decolonisation over the last 70 years has seen the quadrupling in the number of states now members of the United Nations, rendering the prospects of global consensus on anything of substance increasingly impossible. Second, the globalisation of everything, from terrorism, finance, pollution, pandemics to unauthorised people movements, together with the incapacity of weak global and national institutions to deal with challenges which now dramatically affect the peoples of the world and not just their governments, 
together now inducing a crisis of global confidence in the UN, the Bretton Woods institutions, and the nation state itself, and at the same time. And third, the rise of China means the US is no longer the unipolar economic power and prospectively no longer the unipolar political power. And this in turn giving rise to questions on how much longer the US will continue to exercise dominant military power. As the military capabilities of others rise, new asymmetric warfighting capacities emerge in cyber and in space, and questions grow about the future of American global strategic resolve, driven by its own increasingly divided polity. This returns us to the specific question of China and how China could embrace and be embraced by the US, the West and the rest to help mend rather than fracture an already fragile international order. The dream of Chinese reformers for nearly 125 years in the face of foreign pressure, invasion and occupation by both the West and Japan has been to modernise China in order to restore national wealth and power. This too is the vision or the dream of Xi Jinping, who defines his China dream, Zhongguomeng, as a Chinese restoration, Fuxing, in order to make China prosperous and powerful, or Fuqiang. What is so different about today, however, as opposed to previous generations of Chinese reformers, is that these deep-seated national Chinese aspirations are now being realised. Depending on the measure, purchasing power parity or market exchange rates, China is either now or else within a decade likely to be the single largest economy in the world. Once this occurs, it will be the first time since George III was on the throne that this position will be occupied by a non-English-speaking, non-Western, non-liberal democratic state. This is no small matter. Again, if history is our guide, where economic power goes, political power and foreign policy power and influence soon follow. And so the question which the rest of the world now asks is, how will China now deploy this newfound influence within the current order or beyond it? There are, of course, limitations to China's influence. China remains domestically preoccupied with its eternal internal political, economic, social and environmental challenges. China also faces a formidable quantitative and qualitative gap between its own military capabilities and those still of the United States, which cannot be closed until mid-century, if in fact by then. For these reasons, China has every interest in preserving the peace for the foreseeable future. To do otherwise would risk the centrality of its continued economic transformation project, which it correctly sees as central to the sustainability of China's long-term national power. Yet it is clear from the public statements of President Xi Jinping over the last two years that China no longer intends to remain silent on the future of the global and regional order, which China argues it had no role in creating. For decades under Deng Xiaoping, China's foreign policy orthodoxy was hide your strength, bide your time, never take the lead. Tao Guang Yang Hui, Zhe Bu Dang Tou. As of November 2013, this was replaced by a new commitment to a more activist foreign policy of Fen Fa Yue. She now speaks of a new type of great power relationships, Xinjiang Da Guo Guanxi, and a new type of international system, a new type of great power diplomacy with Chinese characteristics, and to use his words directly, a struggle for the future international order, unquote. 
Beyond these generalities, what can we usefully say about China's aspirations for the future of the global order? I argue there are at least 10 important trends to note. Number one, China recognises that it has benefited from the current order so far, particularly in facilitating its export-based growth over 30 years that has underpinned China's economic rise. Two, China at the same time resents and rejects the US notion of China needing to become a responsible global stakeholder, which it sees as condescending in its assumption that China is not one at present. Three, China nonetheless has no interest in any fundamental repudiation of the existing global order, not least because it is highly wary of its own overreach and does not at this stage see itself as an indispensable global power in the unique provision of global public goods. Four, Chinese think tanks are nonetheless hard at work on China's future role in the order. However, it would be wrong to conclude that China at this stage has an agreed internal blueprint for the systematic reform of the order or of any alternative order. Five, China notwithstanding the above is now likely to become an increasingly active voice in the normal review processes of the international system in pursuit of its general organising principle of advocating greater multipolarity in international institutions, which is none too subtle language, code language, for less American power. Number six, China's position in this overall endeavour is strengthened by its growing international support, which it is securing across the G77, reinforced by China's expanding economic assistance program and growing foreign direct investment across the developing world. Seven, China has long seen the United Nations, particularly the Security Council, as an asset for its own international influence, as well as a useful vehicle for developing an increasingly multipolar order, and therefore has little interest in the UN becoming less relevant over time. In fact, it has the reverse view. Eight, for similar reasons, China has welcomed its role in the G20 and is more likely to seek to expand the organisation's global influence over time, including under its own presidency in 2016. And nine, for the Bretton Woods institutions, China is smarting following the refusal of the United States Senate to increase its IMF quota, despite this having the support of both the G20 and the IMF member states. And ten, in part for these reasons, China has decided to establish the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank outside the Bretton Woods framework, and it is possible that China will further innovate in the international financial and economic domain where its global strength is greatest. Each of these ten thematics proceeds from the premise of China's growing global economic power. This in turn places an absolute premium on the success or otherwise of the transformation of China's economic growth model, a process that has formally been underway now for the last two years and where many obstacles have so far been encountered. But assuming this transformation process broadly succeeds, China's global financial and economic influence will continue to increase, not just in trade, where it is already the world's largest trading country, not just in investment, where it is now the world's second or third largest source of FDI and rising, but increasingly in the internationalisation of its currency, first in trade transactions where the renminbi rather than the dollar is now the currency of exchange for approximately 15% of total global trade and rising. Second, where the debate now begins on the future status of the RMB as one of the basket of only four currencies that currently make up the strategic drawing rights, the SDRs of the International Monetary Fund. 
And third, the future debate, but not too far into the future, on the liberalisation of the Chinese capital account itself in order to become a fully-fledged global reserve currency, potentially challenging the current status of the United States dollar. These are not small policy challenges. They are large ones. And unless these challenges are resolved collaboratively, there is potential for considerable destabilisation of global currency and financial markets. Chinese and US interests, however, find themselves in much sharper potential conflict in Asia. This is where their interests most directly rub up against each other, whether on questions of competing territorial claims in the East and South China Seas between China and US allies, on the Taiwan question, or still on the Korean Peninsula. On questions of order, as Robert Kaplan recently reminded us, geography still matters. And it is in Asia that we see the clearest early manifestation of the gradual bifurcation of the region. An economic Asia increasingly centred on China and a security Asia still predominantly centred on the United States. On security, the United States has concluded that China is seeking to weaken and destroy the United States regional military alliances to eventually push the US out of the region and in time replace it with a Chinese sphere of influence. Meanwhile, China has concluded that the US is seeking to weaken, undermine and ultimately sabotage China from within and contain China's diplomatic freedom of manoeuvre from without. These are not happy circumstances. China's fundamental conviction is that the US will never willingly surrender its long-held position of regional and global preeminence to China. As for the regional economic order, China's dominance over the United States in every single bilateral trading relationship in Asia, its deployment of the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, the Silk Road Investment Fund, together with the normal operation of its sovereign wealth funds across the region, are creating a new economic reality in the region of which most in the Washington political elite remain blissfully unaware. The economic reality in Asia is literally changing underneath America's feet. At the same time, the region runs the prospect of becoming further divided economically with sharpening battle lines between Washington's Trans-Pacific Partnership, the TPP, excluding China on the one hand, and Beijing's advocacy for a free trade area of Asia in the Pacific, FTAP, on the other. Trade has traditionally brought Asia closer together. For the first time in decades, it now has the prospect of further dividing the region. Broader strategic developments across the wider region are compounding the regional instability. I have not today elaborated, for example, on the current dispute between China and Japan on the East China Sea, other than to say that this problem has not gone away. Nor have I elaborated on the South China Sea, where Chinese island reclamation efforts have now seen a robust US military response and where the US Defence Secretary's statement last week that Chinese reclamation must now stop leaves us wondering how the US will respond when China does not stop. We will now see greater use of both will we now see greater use of both Subic Bay in the Philippines and Cameron Bay in Vietnam by the US Pacific Fleet as part of a general process of escalation? Will this in turn lead over time to more formal basing rights as Vietnamese and Philippines reactions to China's South China Sea policies intensifies? What we can see, however, is the increasing militarization of the South China Sea over time. Then there is Taiwan. It hasn't gone away either. 
Where presidential elections loom, where the likelihood of the return of the pro-independence Democratic Progress Party to power has already seen China warning of growing instability across the Taiwan Straits, including the most recently produced defence white paper. And that is before we turn our focus to North Korea, which remains arguably the largest threat to security in the wider region because of North Korea's continued nuclear weapons program and the increasing range and accuracy of its missiles. And all this occurs in the context of the recent release of China's uh, most recent and increasingly robust defence white paper last week, its ninth since the 1990s, in which there is a strong emphasis on maritime military struggle and maritime preparation for military struggle, quote-unquote. The report also goes on to say that the, quote, traditional Chinese mentality that land outweighs sea must be abandoned and great importance has to be attached to managing the seas and oceans and protecting maritime rights and interests, unquote. Each of these security challenges is worthy of separate analysis in its own right. Each has escalation potential. But this potential is compounded, not improved, by the deteriorating state of the overall US-China strategic relationship. And this, in turn, has profound implications for the stability of the regional order, a stability that has underpinned the last 40 years of unprecedented economic prosperity and which now fuels most of the global growth as well. So what then is to be done if a functioning global and regional order is to be preserved for the future? This question can only ultimately be resolved between Washington and Beijing. The divisions between them are clear. And while these are pronounced globally at present, they are much more evident in the region where the trend is even clearer. For these reasons, I've recently argued in my report entitled US China 21, completed at the Harvard Kennedy School over the last 12 months since the period of my political exile began. <laughs> Provides you with time to do a few things. But the time has come for these two powers to consider a common strategic framework of what I have called constructive realism, common purpose. What do I mean by that? This is not some sort of utopian dream. It is deeply realist in nature. It seeks to construct for the first time a common narrative for the two that is capable of embracing deep strategic disagreement and deep strategic collaboration at the same time. Rather than making the resolution of disagreements a precondition for constructive engagement or assuming that constructive engagement will automatically result in the resolution of long-standing differences. This framework has three conceptual and practical elements. First, it recognises those fundamental strategic disagreements that do exist, that are deeply realist in nature, and which cannot be resolved between the two countries under present circumstances, or for that matter, for the foreseeable future, and where the strategic objective is to manage these disagreements rather than to solve them. These include the East China Sea, Taiwan, the South China Sea, the future of US alliance structures in Asia, human rights, the rule of law, and democracy. The second element of this concept, this new framework that I advocate, also encourages a vigorous program of constructive strategic cooperation, including the following. Bilaterally, a bilateral investment treaty, deep cooperation on counterterrorism threats which now affect all countries, including China. A common cyber security protocol as both countries increasingly realise that cyber constitutes a new weapon of mass destruction. 
new military transparency measures to reduce accidental conflict, collaboration in the ratification of the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty. Regionally, detailed contingency planning on North Korea, deep collaboration on the implementation of any Iranian nuclear agreement, the long-term harmonisation of regional free trade agreements to prevent the economic bifurcation of the region, and, importantly, the evolution of the East Asia Summit into a long-term Asia-Pacific community, thereby having a regional institution capable of managing regional tensions down over time rather than just see them escalate over time by building a long-term sense of regional security community and including within its membership both the US and China. As I've argued often in Asia, if France and Germany after the events of 1945 could agree to come together in what was then called the Coal and Steel Agreement in 1954, and then the slow and steady evolution of the institutions that we've seen across Europe since then. If France and Germany are capable of that, so are China and the United States and China and Japan. Globally, collaboration on climate change, both before and beyond the December Paris Conference of the Parties, a combined approach to global development and poverty reduction that deploys scarce public capital globally to leverage private investment capital by reducing investment risk for fragile states. A combined approach to the reform of the G20 as the principal institution of global economic governance. A combined approach to UN reform, starting with failing institutions such as the WHO in the face of the continuing threat of global pandemics. And US ratification of UNCLOS and China using UNCLOS, the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, to help resolve territorial disputes with its neighbours. The third pillar of this proposed common strategic narrative of constructive realism is what I also call common purpose. This goes to the common challenges with both countries now faced from outside the current global order, which increasingly will outweigh the differences the two sides have within the order. The enemies of order are there for all those with eyes to see. Violent global jihadism seeking to destroy the very notion of secular states, let alone a society of states. New weapons of mass destruction in the form of cyber terrorism, cyber crime and state-based cyber attacks against critical infrastructure. A new generation of global pandemics. Existential threats to the planet through irreversible climate change. And associated crises in food, water and basic energy supply. I argue that the diplomatic ballast and political capital derived from the implementation of such a strategic framework over time be further deployed to reform and strengthen the current order rather than allowing the order, through a process of strategic drift, to slowly die the death of a thousand cuts. That is what I fear is currently happening to the order at present. I also argue that over time that the political capital derived through constructive engagement be deployed over the long term to deal with the deeply realist problems in the US-China relationship that I've listed before that cannot be solved in the foreseeable future. As with 1919 and 1945, however, the future of the international order will ultimately be determined by political leaderships capable of grasping the future and acting accordingly or not. The alternative is to conclude that somehow we are the hapless victims of the forces of historical determinism and that the current order is in a state of inevitable and irreversible decline. Perhaps we should all remind ourselves afresh what the absence of order actually looks like. 
The uncomfortable truth is that one form of international anarchy or another has been the predominant global condition since the rise of the modern nation-state half a millennium ago, and, if we think about it, for a full millennium before that as well. Our common resolve should be never to return to such a condition again. I thank you. Well, thank you very much. We've, we've now got a, a good period for questions and discussion. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start by taking questions sing, singly, but if it ends up that there's a lot, we might start grouping them. So can I just have an indication of uh, who might like to start with a question? Yes, Professor Stern. Could you just say who you are for the audience? And uh, Nick Stern, LSE, uh, as you know, Kevin. Um, thank you so much. It's an extraordinarily thoughtful um, strategic analysis, and thank you more from us all. Um, I wanted to raise an issue which is, uh, I think, comparable to U.S. and China, and that's U.S. and that's, uh, China and India. And that relationship is uh, difficult. It's uh, very weak on the trade side. And Ch China has just proposed the, um, uh, the road through, through the Himalayas down to the port of Guadar, where the, so the Chinese Navy would be uh, in the Indian Ocean and the Arabian Sea. So that is potentially of uh, great strategic significance, and I wondered if you could speculate a little bit on China, India, and Pakistan. Thank you for the question, Nick, and thanks for your continued labouring the fields on the great global cause of climate change. Uh, both of us carrying the scar tissue of Copenhagen uh, deep in our souls as we look forward to Paris at the end of this year. Uh, you're right to point to the significance of the China-India relationship. <clears throat> it's certainly seen that way both in Beijing and in Delhi, and it's certainly seen that way uh, in Washington as well. Uh, what has impressed me in my recent visits to India in my new capacity as president of the Asia Society Policy Institute is in discussions with the Prime Minister... And the foreign minister and their senior staff is that um, uh, they are fully seized of uh, the three dimensions of this relationship they must wrestle with. Uh, the first is uh, the residual one, which is an unresolved border, uh, and one which uh, uh, in its two parts, uh, both uh, to the east and the west, uh, represent not just an irritant in the uh, India-China relationship, but fundamentally... Uh, poison the public debate uh, in India uh, on the overall prospects for the uh, India-China relationship of the future. Uh, in this most recent visit to Beijing by Prime Minister Modi, uh, I'm unaware, I've not been back to Delhi since then, uh, of what progress, if any, was made. I do, however, see something more of a lighter touch in the public language on the border question. And I think there is a deep realist recognition within uh, Beijing that if uh, this uh, relationship with India is to be fundamentally shifted back to the days uh, of the 1950s, uh, then the border must be resolved. The other two elements of uh, this relationship um, are uh, Modi's approach to the reform of his own economy. Having now sat down with many of his economic ministers in Delhi in recent times, and looking at the scale of the public infrastructure demand uh, which India now faces, and not just in rail but across the board, 
um, it is quite plain to me that there is a reasonably open appetite uh, for large-scale Chinese investment from sovereign wealth funds and from private firms uh, to uh, contribute to closing or beginning to breach India's uh, economic infrastructure gap. I was surprised by the lack of resistance to that uh, when I was in Delhi. And what flows again from this important bilateral visit uh, most recently remains to be seen. But that is, I would say, the uh, bright dimension in the relationship. And then you go to the third part of uh, the strategic uh, jigsaw, which, of course, is the continuing complexity arising from Pakistan um, and how that is to be judged in the future, both uh, uh, in Beijing uh, and in uh, Delhi. Let me chance my arm at least this side of an Ashes test. Um, who's going to win the Ashes, guys? Anyway, the, um, the, uh, by saying this, that I think there is a rising concern uh, in China uh, about what happens now, not just out of uh, Afghanistan, but certainly out of um, uh, parts of Pakistan, Balkistan in particular, and, of course, in the, uh, the territories. Uh, and its impact on security and terrorism in Xinjiang and beyond. And I sense at a very low level the beginnings of a strategic conversation between India and China on what was once an unspeakable subject, and that is how do we deal with common security challenges uh, which now arise uh, from uh, militant Islamism, um, uh, global jihadism, emanating not just from Afghanistan um, but uh, also uh, from parts of Pakistan as well. Uh, that I find um, intriguing in terms of where it will go. The final point I'd make about China-India is this, and I've said this to many of my friends in D.C. And I was in D.C. chatting to folks about that triangle in the, the last week, and that is um, no one should assume, having read all their Time magazine covers um, and their Newsweek cover stories after the um, President Obama's highly successful visit uh, to Delhi in January, where he was the guest of honour for the Indian National Day. Uh, the Indian National Day, by the way, is the 26th of January, same as ours. It's the only reason I can remember it. Um, and and uh, we, th- we usually throw better parties, but that's a separate question. Uh, I don't want to offend any Indian folks who are here. Um, but uh, is that there's often a temptation in D.C. to assume, well, there you go, that's, that's a big strategic rewrite, Um, I just regard that as um, simply one element in a much more complex, evolving relationship between the three capitals, uh, Washington, Delhi, uh, and uh, and Beijing. The final element, of course, is in terms of uh, India's long-term investment needs um, uh, beyond capital-rich China or investment capital-rich China, uh, can Japan constitute an alternative source of investment? Probably at the scales necessary not, But certainly Prime Minister Modi, as we all know from public discussions, is a great admirer of what Japan has achieved in its own economic model and is actively seeking Japanese inbound investment as well. A complex picture, um, but I think one which is, in terms of my aggregate concern, which is the broader strategic stability uh, of of wider, uh, let's call it the wider Indo-Pacific region, uh, that I think is... On balance, there are some positive signs of light. I won't go beyond that between China and India. 
And to conclude where I began by congratulating you on climate change, that is so fundamental to what we face uh, this December piece I wrote last week on that in the New York Times. And if you get China and India together um, on uh, agreeing on peaking dates on carbon and, uh, and peaking rates on carbon, um, which the Chinese are closer to than, of course, our friends in India, and let's bear in mind the Indian footprint at present is much, 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 much smaller than that of China, um, then this level of strategic collaboration is vital for all of us and one which we would at multiple levels seek to encourage. Okay. Um, can I have the gentleman at the back with the glasses first, please? Just wait for the microphone and don't forget to say who you are and where you're from. Okay. Uh, I'm Gaius Vincent. I'm a very obscure politician. Um, I was intrigued I'm not as obscure as I am these days. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting there. Um, I was intrigued at the end of your presentation there. Uh, you raised some points about common interests for the U.S. and China. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you mentioned also the 1950s, and I think if I could paraphrase to the Cold War films of the times, uh, global terrorism and, and, and jihad... Uh, plays the role of the invading aliens there, they're bringing the superpowers together, and uh, environmental crises, the, um, the meteor that's going to destroy the Earth. And I, 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 I understand and uh, take in your points there. Are there any common uh, opportunities that the US and China might be drawn together to pursue, as opposed to just the threats? Well, can I put it in a slightly different way, which I didn't have time to elaborate in these remarks, but they're written in the report, which is online with the Asia Society that I uh, spent the last year or so writing. On the whole phenomenon of order itself, it's really important to delve into the Chinese tradition on this question and to understand where the United States come from, comes from as well. In the Chinese tradition, if I say two characters, or some Chinese folks in the audience, if I say Gaoluan, um, uh, everyone, does anyone think in this gathering who is Chinese that Gaoluan is a good thing or a bad thing? <laughs> I think everyone thinks it's a pretty bad thing. Uh, Luan means chaos. Gao means to create chaos. And, um, and if you've got Tian Xiao Gaoluan, which is everything under heaven in chaos, or Da Luan, uh, the only person who thought that was a good thing was Chairman Mao at the height of the Cultural Revolution, um, uh, which Chinese folk have subsequently not forgiven him for. Um, neither have I, by the way. Um, but um, the deeply wired sense within Chinese political elites, uh, not just now but across time, about the need to preserve order um, is something I believe that we, the rest of the world, can work with our Chinese friends on when it comes to the international domain. Of course, China's concept of order has been an exclusively domestic concept up until now. It hasn't applied to the international domain. But now that China's international interests are so vast and extensive, frankly, the conceptual linking point to the concept of order is one which you can work with in our Chinese interlocutors. Flip to the United States. Um, the United States has got a couple of experiences of order. Uh, one, it never wanted to get into World War I. Uh, but then events dragged it in. Uh, then, as you know, through the complex uh, events in Washington in 1919... Uh, President Wilson was left marooned by the United States Senate, so that was the end of the league uh, because um, the world's largest economy, the world's largest country, and by that stage I think virtually the largest military power was not a participant. 
And then we got to the end of 1945 where the Americans concluded there couldn't be a sustainable order unless they were in it, um, hence their architecture and driving force behind the San Francisco Conference and prior to that Bretton Woods in 1944. And so by different routes, these two vastly different countries and cultures have arrived at what I would describe as, shall I say, common cultural, national, civilizational conclusions about the importance of order, a form of rules-based order. And so therefore I engage in a debate both in Washington and Beijing with our friends saying, here's a whole bunch of stuff out there which is frankly threatening the nature of order itself. I know you've got different concepts about what should be the internal architecture of an order and who should be uh, chief cook and bottle washer and who should be, um, you know, who should be out the back drying the dishes. I get that. But frankly, the external threats to order are becoming massive. The challenges are growing uh, across so many domains of policy as a product of the globalisation of everything. Yet we face global institutions, which you know as scholars and researchers and people who write in the field, are progressively weak in response to the above and nation-states single-handedly incapable of responding. So there is more than the germ of an idea there in terms of trying to bring these two together. What I have sought to do in the in the policy report I've written for both governments um, and for public discussion more generally, is just to begin to sketch what that might just look like. Okay. Um, can I have the gentleman in the green tracksuit, please? I, kn- I knew I should have wore a suit today. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> But don't forget I'm, to say who you are. I'm Donald Breen, and I'm yeah, a student I'm Green, um, yeah. that you'd never notice. I can't see where you are. Uh, I'm here. In... Someone point <laughs> over there. Oh, good day. Hey. How are you? <laughs> How's it going? Um, <laughs> this piggybacks a little bit on the end of your last question, but your analysis of U.S.-China relations seems to be driving towards the U.S. seeing China as an equal in the world and collaborating with China on the, the issues of the day. However... The, omen, the omens aren't good, as in the AIIB, which China has set up and some would say to rival the World Bank. U.S. has completely stayed out of it, even though its allies have, you know, went, went into it. So I'm just wondering, do, do you, from your point of view, is it not unrealistic for any American politician to be able to be elected saying that they're going to treat China in some ways unequal? Because that's the reality of how American politics is working at the moment. Uh, which is why my report doesn't actually talk about that. Because, <clears throat> um, you know, uh, pigs don't fly, and um, uh, at least in my country. And, uh, <laughs> and when they do, you know you've been drinking. So, and, so, um, uh, and so, therefore, uh, frankly, on the, on the base a- analysis of the equality of national powers, this is as fraught a subject for those of you who work in the field now as it's ever been. Look at the great debates about um, uh, dreadnoughts uh, in the uh, decade leading up to World War I, the great dreadnought race. Um, I mean, for God's sake, we started buying dreadnoughts down, down the South Pacific um, for what particular reason, I'm not sure, but we bought some. Um, <coughs> as that became the measure by which national power uh, was measured... Um, the indices of national power is of itself a complex academic discipline. And certainly uh, what I've discovered in my own studies at Harvard Kennedy School last year, if you look at the multiple indices of power, uh, which both U.S. think tanks and those advising U.S. government use and those advising the Chinese government and the People's Liberation Army, uh, these are blunt instruments. Of course, 
We cannot use methodological imprecision to hide the fact that these are numero uno and numero duo in the world. They are. Um, so I don't think it's sort of uh, it's even factually credible to point to sort of an equality of point, an equality of power point between the two. But when you start to have, by simply a measure of a global GDP at market exchange rates, uh, an America which after the war was 35% of global GDP and uh, now is uh, in the teens, obviously something's happening. Um, and you, just, you don't have to read Jane's fighting ships every night, um, poor souls in this room if they do. Um, maybe they do down the IISS, I'm not sure. Uh, to work out that it's a more diffuse military picture as well. So the key question that I am confronted with is someone who has a deep, passionate intellectual and policy interest and political interest in this area, um, is how do you fashion an arrangement between states when these things are still in flux? Um, because that's the best time in which you can do it. Uh, once you have a one decisive outcome over another, it becomes much more complex. And we are, I think, in a period of a couple of decades of flux at present against the various barometers of national power. My second point uh, is um, the guy I've worked with most closely at Harvard the last year, Graham Allison, author of Essence of Decision, and uh, has now got his new project, um, uh, Thucydides Trap, uh, which the IR students here would be familiar with, um, essentially, as you know, drawn from the Peloponnesian Wars, and, um, and predicting, or seeking to predict, uh, the behaviour of an established great power as it seeks to confront a rising great power. Um, and uh, Graham Allison's analysis in uh, 15, I think, case studies since uh, the birth of the modern nation-state to the present, that 12 of the 15 have resulted in war, three not. Of course, one of the three notable examples, of course, is the gentleman's handshake across the Atlantic between Britain and the United States at some mystical point between the 1890s and the 1920s. It sort of happened there somewhere. But that was kind of within culture, not across culture, um, um, although some Brits would object to <laughs> saying that their cultures are the same as the United States. But I'll leave that to a separate debate in the sociology department. The... Um, so what I'm saying is you can either take a determinist view of all this and just saying it's all going to get bad. As soon as you're big and powerful, you're going to seek whatever you want to do to maximise power, which is what the hyper-realists do. And I, my great fear with all that, and frankly even some of the literature on Thucydides' trap, is that it becomes self-fulfilling prophecies. So uh, liberal internationalists like me with a strongly realist tinge um, have a different view, which is you get in there with a bunch of ideas and you seek to construct uh, the framework, as I said, of acknowledging and managing strategic difference at the same time as harnessing strategic collaboration and seeing what political capital has produced as a result. Right. Um, can we have this uh, gentleman here with the coat on? And, yep. Don't forget to say who you are. Hi, Terence from uh, Cass Business School. So what is your view of, on the proposal of China and the United States forming the Group of Two or the G2, in short? Well, I think it's <clears throat> what I describe, it's like one of those dance moves that never quite worked because the coordination wasn't there. And so early in the Obama administration, there was some language along those lines, and um, to which uh, China robustly said, no, thank you, Uncle Sam. 
Um, and then by the time Xi Jinping came along and warmed up to the subject with uh, Xi Jinping Dao Guanxi, uh, a new type of great power relationship between the two, uh, the Americans had got cold feet, uh, having had lots of representations from Southeast Asia and other countries in East Asia. This was not a good idea. So I think uh, as a concept, uh, so I say as a bald headline, uh, it is a real problem, both in terms of its uh, usability, um, both within Washington now and more broadly uh, across um, Asia. I think um, if our European friends became conscious of it, they'd be actually collectively horrified, but Europe is basically internally preoccupied and has been for some time. Um, so, um, so leaving the nomenclature of G2 to one side, but going on to the substance of the basic reality is, here are the two largest economies in the world, two largest militaries, both um, P5 members, UN Security Council. My question comes back always to a practical question, is that if you want a functioning rules-based order because you've got increasing, in the case of the United States, in the case of China, or continuing, in the case of the United States, global interest, how do you maximise uh, the protection of those interests, those of your citizens around the world? You need a rules-based system in which to do it. And so the, I think the contribution from scholars and the contribution from policy advisers and, and those of us who try and straddle those two worlds um, through politics uh, is to try and bring those two sets of phenomena together. Will it succeed? I have no idea. Uh, is it worth trying? Absolutely. Okay. Um Right, can I have that woman with the white hair and the white scarf? This is a sort of dressing. Thank you coat. very much. I didn't realise it was white. I was trying to make it blonde, but thank you. <laughs> well, in Chinese, there's this great movie called Bai Mao Nu, so, uh, which is the white-haired ladies. So, uh, thank so you. you should, you should Th feel honoured by all of that. Thank you, thank you, Mr. Rudd. Thank you. Um, my name is um, Anne Bardol. I'm from Monash University in Australia. Okay. Um, thank you for your presentation. Uh, I just wanted to get it. You've talked about one of the impetus um, for perhaps uh, a constructive realism is um, a common sense of order. But I was also wanting, wanting you to reflect on what role do you see other nations, groups of nations such as the EU or your own country for that matter, have the one in, from which I'm in exile, that one. Yeah. <laughs> and also, we do know Australia will win the Ashes. Just <laughs> Thank you. The, um, anyway, we'll leave that naked tribalism to one side because <laughs> as, as a liberal internationalist, I can't be obviously sort of single-mindedly in pursuit of Australia's interests in the Ashes, even, <laughs> even though I am. The, um, look... Um, one of the things which fascinates me about both Washington and Beijing, and I know both capitals now quite well. Um, until recently, I knew Beijing much better than I did Washington, but I've spent more time in the United States in recent times, is how sophisticated their policy apparatus really is. Um, the, the, the other thing uh, which confronts you is how monstrously capable of misperception they are as well of one another. That's not just an easy thing to say. I mean, I, I've said deliberately in my report, my remarks today, that there are objective, real interests and values which conflict with one another. That's true. There's a whole bunch of stuff going on there, uh, which is equally uh, just based on quite odd misperceptions. Um, and there are examples I could give you. Um, the value often of uh, third parties, uh, Di San Famia, 
um, is um, simply to try and uh, bring a lens to bear on what really divides as opposed to what doesn't. Um, the methodology I have sought to apply in this report, um, and again, if you're interested, it, the Asia Society website, it's there. I won't repeat its content. Just have a read and then send me darts by email if you disagree. Uh, is I try to actually look at the reality through both prisms. And that is, if you sit long enough with Beijing think tanks, and I went to Beijing 12 times last year and spent a lot of time with think tanks, political leaders, uh, and the military, and all those guys. Um, and to absorb to the greatest extent I could, as someone who spent a fair bit of time tr studying Chinese language and history and philosophy, what's the prism for analysis? Uh, what surprises me is that when you actually present that in a cold, uh, shall I say, descriptive fashion in Washington, uh, it is often incapable of being heard by some, at least, because um, it seems so wild uh, in its conclusions. For example, <clears throat> China actively believes that America is supporting colour revolutions to overthrow the Chinese Communist Party. It's a, and that view is virtually reflected in the Defence White Paper put out by the Chinese in the last week. You put out the Americans and they'd say, well, would we were that organised? Um, <clears throat> and, uh, you know, we, we just don't have time to do that sort of thing and if we did, we'd mess it up. Um, <clears throat> And um, it is very difficult to put together an evidence base to support that uh, proposition. But it is deeply held uh, when uh, the Chinese observe, for example, the events in Maidan in the Ukraine, where they would see lots of um, you know, European foreign ministers uh, off to the Ukraine and saying X, Y and Z should happen. And rolling it back uh, an earlier, to an earlier period when we did have that set of coloured revolutions uh, in Central Europe in particular. So I think the utility of, uh, shall I say, third parties, uh, whether it's Europeans or Antipodeans, um, who, uh, if, you've un if you've spent a bit of time with both countries and understand it at depth and not superficially, is simply to hold what I describe as an objective lens to it and then uh, to offer a proposal on how you might get through that um, the proposals I put forward in this report uh, are not an exercise in, you know, wild utopianism. If you've spent, you know, half a lifetime in Australian politics, it beats the utopianism out of you, let me tell you, <clears throat> in a fairly brutal way. Um, so this actually seeks to combine a view which says, look, let's not get into determinist surrenderism and just saying it's all going to drift in a very bad direction. Here is how it actually can be <clears throat> put back on course and around a set of core interests and overlapping values concerning order where I think um, a uh, meeting of minds could occur. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm conscious of the fact that there are many gentlemen in the audience, but there are many non-gentlemen as well. And They're the Australians. I, and we've only, we, we, I'd like to have representatives from all the audience asking questions if they feel so disposed. So do stick your hand up, um, whoever you are. In the meantime, can we have that uh, bloke with the pink scarf in the second row? Cheers. Thank you very much. Um, I'm from the University of Warwick. I've got two brief questions, Mr Rudd. Um, firstly, uh, three days ago, the Washington Post published an article entitled For... American pundits, China isn't a country, it's a fantasy land. 
Um, and in your opinion, to what extent do you think this statement's true? My second question is this. You mentioned briefly human rights, and I wanted to know if you thought that Western liberal democracies should stop criticizing so harshly China's human rights, human, China's human <clears throat> rights record, and even if not, whether you think that China might cultivate its own credible conception of human rights that focus on economic freedoms. Thanks. They are good questions. On the first one, uh, I think that's arrant nonsense. That's just my subtle view, subtle response. <laughs> uh, the, the, the view that uh, China is a fantasy as opposed to a country. Um, I don't even understand the rational basis for such a conclusion being reached. <coughs> Chinese civilization um, has been around for 5,000 years. Its organization into, nation, into states began essentially um, by the time you get to the, well, sort of the Western Zhou dynasty, about 1000 BC, um, and then the unification of the Chinese into a singular, in a, a, a singular state in about 220 BC with uh, Qin Shi Huang. And so the whole notion that this is not a political entity as well as being a, a civilizational tradition is just, you know, codswallop. Um, so anyway, that's my response to your first point. Or your paraphrase of the American commentary that, um, that you had seen. The second point um, about human rights. I think my view is along these lines. Um, make three points. One is... Um, I went to live in China for the first time more than 30 years ago. And uh, the China that I saw then was you had two choices in life. You could wear green or you could wear blue. And Chinese kids here will know that from their parents. Green or blue. Is it a blue day today or a green day today? Um, uh, you didn't get to choose uh, where you, uh, whether you could go to university or not. That was determined for you. You were determined which university you'd go to if you went to university, what you would study, what work unit you'd be attached to, and where you'd therefore spend the rest of your life. End of story. Um, it was also a massively uh, party-endorsed homophobic culture. Okay? Now, I roll the clock on about 30 years, and I go back to China these days. Um, uh, the fact that uh, you've got Chinese travelling freely abroad... You've got Chinese who are not, in my observation in this room, wearing either green or blue, but a range of other colours as well. Um, the fact that um, they are choosing their own lives and, frankly, whether they live abroad or go back in China and make a dollar or make a yuan, make a renminbi uh, or not, is essentially increasingly uh, at their discretion. And in terms of uh, the uh, rights of uh, minorities... Uh, particularly um, the uh, gay community in China, what I've noticed is quite a sea change in the way in which these questions are looked at within China. And it seemed to be increasingly part of a reasonably uncontestable private space. So my answer to the broad question that you've put is that what I see over 30 years is a greater personal freedom for people. Um, but does that mean there is freedom of political speech? No, it doesn't mean that at all. But it does mean there's a whole bunch more personal freedoms than there were before. And if you're trying to give a rational answer to this question about rights of individuals, it has to be undertaken in that rounded sort of way. The second point I'd make is the evolution of this greater individual space or personal space for Chinese people has not occurred because the rest of us in the collective West have done a war dance 
uh, around China um, and chanting human rights, human rights, human rights, human rights. Um, and uh, uh, that kind of hasn't been the cause. Uh, what has happened is that you've had an evolution of uh, the normal processes that you see in development economics um, where people's attitudes change as their income and education levels change over time. And what the future trajectory of that is, I don't know, but I know it'll be largely shaped internally by the good folks of China, including the hundreds of thousands of Chinese now studying in the United States, Australia and the United Kingdom. Um, and, and, uh, and that great tribe of people who go back to China speaking um, either Texan English or uh, Liverpool English or Australian English. Yeah. Just think about it. What a melting pot that will be. You'll need interpreters soon to work, work your way through that back in China. The final point, though, is this. This is a comment to, uh, about the collective West. And I made some remarks in my early speech about why folk like uh, Ralph Miliband could come here, come to this institution, come to the United Kingdom and uh, celebrate the intellectual freedom which this uh, country has provided. And that is the collective West just needs to buck up a bit, frankly, about what it stands for. I mean, the intellectual traditions which we have inherited, the freedoms we have inherited, and uh, what we take to be near and dear to our own tradition are not things to be apologised for in the world. They are us. They are who we are. Own it with pride. Go out there. We shouldn't relativise these things. These have been hard-fought and, um, and I'm a great reader of Tudor history and of the Glorious Revolution. And what a bunch of accidents all that was. Um, but we managed to pull it off because my lot hadn't been sentenced to their criminal servitude in 1688. <laughs> they got sent down there 100 years after that, just down the road at the Old Bailey. I just got the name carved into the desk. The, um, uh, but frankly, I mean, the collective West... And what constitutes this amazing cocktail of uh, the, uh, the Enlightenment, um, the Renaissance, Reformation, this combination of, um, of uh, philosophical and religious traditions which make us who we are today, these should be owned with confidence and pride rather than being the subject of, shall I say, sort of creaking apology. And that is quite different from saying, and you shall do likewise. Um, there's a great contest of ideas out there, and people around the world will make their choices. So that's my response to your, to your question. Okay. I think we're coming to a close. I'm going to take um, two people. I'm going to take this uh, woman in the green here, and then after that there was a gentleman over there that's been waiting for some time with the moustache, I believe. <laughs> So first, this, this uh, woman here, please. Hi. Uh, thank you. My name is Olivia Gipner from LSE Ideas. Thank you for um, yeah, showing that there's no convincing rationale for escalation. And um, my question would be, with your access to the political elite in China, um, what do you see, um, do you see an influence of like, current centralization through Xi Jinping and then maybe um, moves by the bureaucracy, the provinces, but also um, the rising middle class that could kind of challenge a more um, aggressive mood in China as well? Okay. well the future, oh, sorry, you want to get you, the other one? Do you want to just hold while I take the... Can you... you need a, well, you carry on if you want to. <laughs> <laughs> I always do what I'm told by moderators. 
Because you, you get the last word. No, no, take, take a few more. It's fine. Well, well we're just going to take this gentleman here and then we're going to wind up. Um, Anthony Grant, Mr. Rudd. Um, I wonder if you, could, uh, you mentioned briefly uh, the Korean Peninsula and the Hermit Kingdom, but didn't, didn't go into much detail on that. I wonder if you can share some of your experience of being twice Prime Minister and Foreign Minister as to whether you have any insights into how the Chinese leadership uh, operates regarding North Korea, whether you learned anything about how they deal with this erratic leadership in North Korea, uh, especially the new young great leader, and whether, whether China really does have any real influence now on North Korea's actions and the way it operates there, and, and, and whether you have any other insights on, on, on this and what we could learn from. Well, let me take them in reverse order. I'll go to... Um uh, North Korea first and then back to Chinese domestic politics, so that's all right. Yeah, I've been to North Korea twice and um, I was let out on both occasions. That's um, a funny old place. Uh, who else has been up to North Korea in this room? Okay, yeah, you've got a bit of scar tissue, I can tell. And uh, the, um, It is a funny old place. Um, but I haven't been there under the, uh, under the new leader. Um, I've only been there under the dear leader. Um, and, um, and for me as a sinologist you know, by training, uh, what strikes me and has struck me in my visits to North Korea, and these have not been really recent, but they've been within the last decade, is that, um, and I wasn't around for the Cultural Revolution, but seriously the politics of North Korea and its public political culture is so much reminiscent of all the newsreel footage that um, we consumed as undergraduates about the, the great proletarian cultural revolution in China. Um, and, um, and change is very, very slowly coming. People who actually look carefully at the North Korean economy will tell you that um, uh, the, the range of uh, market reforms in agriculture and in uh, commerce within cities is probably now about where China was in 76 to 78 um, that is in that shoulder period be- between the Cultural Revolution closing and when um, uh, Deng Xiaoping uh, obtained political power in the uh, third plenum of the 11th Central Committee. Secondly, on the bilaterals uh, between the PRC and uh, the DPRK, I'm one of those old-fashioned sinologists who likes reading their, the official sources. I mean, it's, I know it's unfashionable, but um, I take the view that people write the People's Daily for a purpose, and that's to tell you what's going on from the government's point of view or from the party's point of view. Um, And that's the way I was trained. But if you read the North Korean official sources and what they have been saying about uh, China in the last uh, year or two, particularly uh, Xi Jinping's decision to uh, have um, bilateral uh, visits uh, with South Korea and President Park, before the customary invitation to the North Korean leader to jump on the train in Pyongyang and, uh, and to make the, uh, the journey down to Beijing. Uh, the North Korean media has been pretty vitriolic, um, uncharacteristically so, talking about acts of betrayal. So I think it's fair to say that the North Korean-China relationship is worse now than it's been at any point uh, since 19... 19- 50. Um, So, and in part, I think the reason for that at the Chinese end 
is uh, when Kim Jong-un um, thought it was really smart um, to uh, have a nuclear test underground um, um, at Chinese New Year, not long after Xi Jinping had taken over. Like, there's a double offence there. You don't have a nuclear test on Chinese New Year. It's like having one on Christmas Day. Um, it really makes you grumpy. Um, upsets your holiday plans and everything. The, um, but uh, Xi Jinping's a very smart guy, and uh, Xi Jinping had worked out that there is a huge capacity for this um, nuclear weapons program in North Korea, uh, with now the accumulated North uh, nuclear material capable of making between five and eight bombs, um, plus a missile range, which uh, only a decade ago we laughed at the possibility of them having effective intercontinental range missiles, and people are laughing less so these days. Of course, the whole problem of miniaturisation and, um, and putting nuclear material into warheads is a separate um, science. But Xi Jinping could see this, frankly, as unleashing the dogs of war and hell across Northeast Asia. Uh, what happens at the point at which uh, North Korea obtains this capacity? Um, and the real threat, um, from his perspective, is what does the South then do? Uh, does Japan go nuclear? Um, uh, and or is there a rapid acceleration ballistic missile defence cooperation um, at a tactical level uh, with the United States to, pro to protect these countries from any incoming from the north, all of the above being possible, but fundamentally under undermining Xi Jinping's strategic economic objective, which is to put the economy first for the next 15 years to complete the economic transformation of China's uh, own growth model. So there is a level of toxicity in this relationship with this huge, and the North Korean leaders have been out trying to cultivate new friendships in Russia and elsewhere. Um, so it's a relationship to watch, and I simply put it as one of those areas where I think there's now sufficient common interest between the United States and China for the two countries to work together uh, on a range of scenarios as relates to North Korea's future. I don't think people have quite worked out what happens when intelligence communities conclude that North Korea has the capacity to target a warhead on a missile. Um, and I don't think that's any longer in fantasy land. Um, that's the real challenge we face, thanks to AQ Khan and others. Um, finally, on uh, Chinese domestic politics, <coughs> Xi Jinping's a phenomenal political leader. Um, he's been in office now for effectively about um, two and a half years. Um, and the rate of um, power consolidation on the part of Xi Jinping has been in excess of what any observer predicted, including myself. I wrote when he came to power in an article in Foreign Affairs magazine that he would be the most powerful leader China has had since Deng Xiaoping, and that was scoffed at by many at the time. Now I think it's closer to him being potentially the most powerful Chinese leader since Mao. There are a number of reasons for that, one of which is that his deep conclusion as a party loyalist that the only way to survive the Chinese Communist Party is to take the broadsword to industrial levels of corruption within the Chinese Communist Party. Um, this is not just retail stuff, a few dollars out the back door. Um, this is large-scale stuff and involving the military as well. So in order to bring that about, he's rapidly accumulated political power. 
The second problem, however, the second consequence of that, or the further consequence of that, which I don't think has been anticipated, is that because this is such a far-reaching campaign, and I don't think any Chinese person here in the room would not have know somebody or know of somebody who knows somebody uh, who's not been affected by this anti-corruption campaign, it is so pervasive across the country, high and low, that it's had the effect, I think, of causing um, Chinese economic decision-makers at the provincial and sub-provincial level to put the brakes on because you don't want to be accused of actually giving the green light to a project if someone's going to accuse you of having la guanxi, um, that is, uh, use your connections to Zohoma, or go through the back door, and da chang xie yi, and produce an agreement for a, um, uh, a project. So it's having a, an economic consequence in terms of the slowing of the growth rate. Where does it all end up? Um, I think um, it is hard to predict this one, um, but I think... Uh, Xi Jinping's core objective um, is to clean up the party so that it can survive um, because he is a party loyalist. Secondly, um, uh, to transform the growth model, which is a phenomenally complex act of political economy in itself, um, before you add any other complications. Um, and uh, he believes that in order to achieve A and B above, he needs to have... Uh, the levers, political levers at his control, and that has led to considerable centralisation of, um, of uh, policy decision-making. I don't see that changing any time soon. That's my best answer to your question. Thank you. OK, well, we've run out of time. Can I just ask the audience, um, we're going to take the speaker out of the room, and can I just ask you to stay put um, while we do that? But before, before we proceed in, on that basis, um, I think you know, we've heard an absolutely wonderful lecture today, and our speaker's addressed an incredible range of different questions. I mean, he set out an analysis in which US-China relations are sort of heading towards either a tipping point or a turning point, and he's offered an analysis that suggests that whilst there are profound disagreements and differences, some kind of common narrative that would enable the marshalling of common purposes is possible. I think if you think back to the conflicts that engulfed us all in this continent and beyond 100 years ago, you can see just how important it is for us to be addressing those questions. So lastly, can I ask you to join me in thanking our speaker, Kevin Rudd.